Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, guys, welcome to another episode of You Have Permission. This one is uh, kind of a doozy, kind of hard to know how to think about it, hard to know how to approach it exactly. I don't know exactly where this conversation is going to go, but I'm very intrigued. We're here to talk about three new scandals that have upset the evangelical church in, I guess, the Western world, but North America. Let's count Australia for Hillsong. This episode is, first of all, a sort of modified generation gap culture hour type episode. These are episodes that we've been doing once a month uh, on the patron only feed. And I'm joined for those episodes as today by Tony Jones and our uh, producer, Josh Gilbert. And we tend to respond to current events in American, North American Christianity. And so that seemed like a good kind of fit. Let's do one of those type of episodes because this is very much a current affairs, current events reaction type episode. And also a reason to have Tony here is that one of the disgraced leaders we'll be talking about is Mark Galley. Galley? Galley. Mark Galley, a longtime editor in chief of Christianity Today. And Tony knows Mark to some degree and has had interactions with him and his ilk for decades. So we're glad to have Tony's voice here. Also joining us today is Josh Patterson. Uh, former guest of your permission about a year and a half ago, maybe, and the host of the Rethinking Faith podcast. 
And Josh worked with Bruxy, Bruxy Cavey, one of the other uh, pastors we're talking about today, as part of the Jesus Collective. He became friends with him and looked up to Bruxy as a spiritual guide uh, and mentor. So for those reasons, this seemed like uh, the right crew to talk about these topics. Of course, it would be good to have a woman's voice on this topic, especially since all three of these scandals are gender and sexuality related. Perhaps as more info comes out or maybe just this conversation will lead to some really good sort of ongoing questions to ask. And it might make sense to do a follow up and bring on some women to talk about it. So super open to that for now. It's a bunch of white dudes. Apologize for that. Um, But excited for what each of you bring to the table today with your specific knowledge around these topics. So I'm not sure where we should start, except that I think I need to keep talking a little longer to give a little bit of background on what these scandals are. Before I do that, let's just hear your voices. Tony, thanks for being here. Great to be back, Dan. (laughs) Josh Patterson, thank you for joining us this week. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. And Josh Gilbert, thank you for manning the helm. Always always about it. Thanks, Dan. So I'm going to give a very brief overview of the three scandals we're talking about, and we can unpack more detail as we go. So the first one is Bruxy Cavey. What was it? Sorry, the the Meeting House is the name of his church, right? That's what they rebranded to. I believe he's one of the largest megachurch pastors in Canada. Is that right? And it is an Anabaptist kind of tinged brethren denomination that they were affiliated with. And Bruxy was the founding pastor of the Jesus Collective, which Josh has been involved in, um, which he'll tell us more about. Anyway, it's this kind of no, you know, no religion, just Jesus. That's sort of Bruxy's marketing. It's like Jesus after religion, Jesus for those who don't like religion. Turns out Bruxy has been involved in sexual discretion, indiscretions for at least 11 years. We will, I'm sure we'll talk about what exactly to call this. It may be clergy sex abuse. It is certainly spiritual abuse. And it is certainly abuse of power. And then it is certainly covering that up for a decade. That is for sure. And uh, this guy is less popular than the other two scandals like Hillsong and Christianity Today. But I think relevant for our listenership because Bruxy's church and approach to ministry, as evidenced by, for instance, Josh's personal involvement, is much closer to the average faith and spirituality of a You Have Permission listener, probably than Christianity Day magazine or Hillsong Church. I I imagine we have some people who read Christianity Day, maybe a handful of people who attend Hillsong churches. They're very big. But Bruxy's much closer to kind of our bread and butter here. So he he began a relationship, a sexual relationship with a woman who was 23, 23 years old when he was 46, who had come to him for spiritual counseling. So really shitty stuff. And that all came out earlier this year. The second scandal briefly is Christianity Today. And this is reporting that they did about themselves um, with some sort of, uh, I think, very honorable sort of, you know, people sort of exempting themselves from it, doing the reporting without talking to the current editor in chief and president and stuff. And I actually emailed Daniel Silliman, recent guest on the show, and thanked him for that reporting because I think it was very good. And it's about Mark Golly, who is the former editor in chief and uh, a man named Ola Tukunbo, 
Ola Tukunbo Olawoye. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, also known as Tox. That was his nickname. And uh, that dude actually became a registered sex offender in 2017, soliciting sex from a minor. And there was like a basically a long period, decade plus of sexual harassment, a lot of reports about the two men, never disciplined, never followed up, basically a, a bad process and a culture of unconscious sexism. Again, we'll get into details as we talk about it. And that came out just a couple weeks ago. And then in the last week, a new story about Brian Houston, who's already in legal trouble, the uh, co-founder of Hillsong Church. I believe it's he and his wife co-founded it. He is currently in a legal situation already before this, accused of failing to report sexual abuse by his father, a pastor. That's not yet been proven, but that's ongoing legal issue. And then what's come out recently is some problematic substance abuse, including mixing substances, inappropriate sexual communication with employees, possibly some sex in a 40-minute hotel room uh, period in which not a lot is known about what happened. And then after that hotel room incident, the church basically paid hush money cloaked in Christianese language. And at that point in 2019, he was supposed to step down for a while, but basically he didn't. And so late last year, the church board took action and began a more thorough investigation into his behavior. So all of these have dropped in the last month or so. And if you're paying attention to sex scandals and evangelicalism, it's a a dizzying moment. Can I just say, Dan, what a great time to be a Christian. (laughs) Oh, shit. That's kind of where today's going, huh? (laughs) Well, look, great job recapping them, it's really something. Because here's the interesting thing. For the Generation Gap Culture Hour, a little behind-the-scenes info for listeners, when the Bruxy stuff was announced that he was taking a leave and being investigated in December, I believe, I posted it, you know, on or mentioned it in, in a text thread, and we put it on this Google Doc that we share where we kind of queue up potential topics for conversation, but we're like, well, let's just wait because who knows, maybe he'll be cleared. Like we're not, we we don't need to speculate on this, but then this all dropped in the last week. And even like in the last 24 hours before we're, we're recording this, the church sent an email saying that in addition to the victim of his abuse on whom the report was based, now two more Persons have reported to a third-party investigator that they, too, were sexually abused or in some way abused by him. So that's, I mean, we don't even know anything about that other than the church sent an email saying that there's two more accusations. And the accusations are confirmed in that they are through a third-party victim advocate that the church retained. And so we know that they are at least somewhat credible, but they haven't been looked into yet. Uh, But it's not just hearsay. Oh, I heard there are a couple more people. It's like two people have specifically come forward via this process. So let's let's talk about Bruxy KV first. Josh Patterson, tell us a little bit about your involvement with him before I ask you about sort of the impact of this story on you personally. Yeah, sure. So I uh, first encountered Bruxy KV 
at a chapel service that I attended uh, in my undergrad at Messiah. Well, I, I don't even need to say undergrad. I only went to Messiah. So <laughs> at Messiah, now university. And he was like a chapel speaker and he taught like a J term class. And it was pretty cool. So that's where I first got introduced to uh, Bruxy. I think it was probably around then that I, I picked up a copy of uh, his first book, The End of Religion, uh, which he recently like, you know, published an extended version or something like that. And so that was like kind of introduction to him. And then slowly, just as my own faith journey, spiritual journey uh, kind of grew and developed, Bruxy, kind of like you were talking about earlier, or perhaps Tony said, I uh, was a person that uh, I kind of switched and looked up to as like, oh, well, like, here's a pastor uh, that's not shit, even though like all this other stuff is going on. So he had another book, Reunion, that I read that was very helpful. Like I taught a teaching, wrote a teaching series on that and taught it multiple times. Um, so that was cool. He's been on my podcast twice. And uh, like you pointed out, I, I did some work with him uh, for Jesus Collective, which is kind of like a grassroots movement that was kind of birthed out of the meeting house. It, it's connected, but it's not like an official meeting house thing. They're distinct entities. And uh, I worked with Bruxy in this thing called the Theology Circle, kind of helped give some some voice to like the theological direction of said uh, collective. So that's the relationship that I have. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you you offered to come on and talk about this. I wanted to make sure that I sort of say that I wanted to make sure that was OK with you, that it was a good time. And, and you said, I think it would be good for me to process this more. But we just, you know, we're appreciative of you being willing to do that in public. And of course, as you know, you we can take anything out and Josh will snip it out before we put this episode out. But yeah, you have been I mean, you and I are friends unrelated to the podcast appearances we text regularly and talk on the phone a fair bit. And so I had known that this was tough for you and you were the one who sent me, you were the first person to sent me the link and accompanied by some swear words, I think. Um, and I guess I do want to hear like, what has been the personal impact for you thus far? I mean, you're, you're being very polite about it at this point, but I imagine it's been really rough. Yeah, man. I mean, my first initial response was basically like oh fuck not youtube like not youtube bruxy if it was anybody else and this is just me being cynical like another mega church pastor be like yeah of course but i was like bruxy bruxy cavey and i remember i i sent that link to you that link was sent to me actually by like a friend connection i had made through podcasting i read it at work stepped outside called a good friend of mine, uh, another pastoral mentor friend, and basically just like couldn't even get it out. I like cried on the phone to my friend and used lots of profanity. <laughs> and uh, it kind of ruined like, you know, my week. And then I had to go try to explain to my boss who has zero context of who Bruxy is or what going to church is like, why I was so distraught. Yeah, it it was difficult because again, for me, Bruxy was like, and uh, perhaps this is my fault for holding him in this light, but he was like the one that I could still look at the, the one, you know, like famous, so to speak, pastor uh, that I still trusted that, you know, was in active ministry uh, that I had worked with that has had a significant impact on my faith. And so it just, it felt like just like one more nail in the coffin when I'm already sitting around processing, like, 
am I even a Christian? Like, what does that mean? So like a lot of like identity shifts, you know, with me stopped being a pastor. Now I'm a brewer. So it's like, it was just like one more thing, kind of like a breaking point. You know, what it reminds me of is what I went through to some degree when Jean Vanier, when the news came out about him having sexually abused multiple women under his spiritual care throughout his career as a priest. And we, we talked about that at length in, in a previous episode, Josh will get links up in the show notes to both Josh Patterson's episode with me and that John Vanier episode, but it was sort of like not Vanier. I think in my mind for recently living humans that had like a public persona within Christianity, I would have had Vanier as number one. I think I did. I think he was my number one living or recently living, you know, contemporary figure in within Christianity. And, and I had listened to his like unedited two and a half hour on being episode multiple times, read multiple books of his and his, his gentleness and his seeming understanding of the gentle love of Christ and care for the, the, those with disabilities and sort of the role of brokenness and, you know, just, just hauntingly gorgeous understanding of Christianity and put into practice through the founding of this international now organization of, of homes for people with disabilities. And then what the, f- <laughs> this is what this guy did. He had this massive blind spot. And so then, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, like he was the guy for me. I don't know that Bruxy was the guy for you. Um, I'm not sure like, you know, top five or something, but I, I, you know, but you knew him closer you knew him. I didn't, I'd never met Sean Vanier. I had no personal relationship with him. So I was shielded from that aspect, but you, you just mentioned that he was top three, top three for you. Yeah, probably somewhere around there. I mean, at least on like, I think having the personal relationship, you know, boosts the status, so to speak. Right. I think maybe put it this way as a pastor, Bruxy had an insane impact on me and the way that I chose to be a pastor what I thought it looked like to be a pastor in a way that was healthy. <laughs> so like that also probably bumps that level up a bit as well. Tony, you've uh, been around the longest. That's the generation gap culture hour joke of it, you know, and you've also been in the world of, you know, you have been a public ministry figure for you know most of your adulthood. So you have a different experience in that sense You've also got more more years clocked in this world. I'm wondering, you know, which leaders or writers or theologians or whomever that have fallen from grace, like, do you know the one that's been the biggest impact on you personally? I don't know if you want to talk about that or not, but I'm curious. I've had several friends who've fallen due to moral failure, and it's hard to... I, I think most of the ones I know who to whom that happened, it happened before they became super famous. Like they were kind of rising in fame. It happened to a couple guys who were really part of the very early core emergent type world. So they never had that kind of status in, in like evangelicalism writ large. I when I hear Josh talk, I mean the the it would be like if Brian McLaren 
had fallen. That's what it would be like for me. Yeah. Not just because of Brian McLaren's status as a public figure and his stature in my own life, but because of the public persona that Brian McLaren has, which is as a very gentle, generous, caring, giving human being. Now, I know really, I mean, I, I know Brian McLaren, I think, far better than Josh knows Bruxy, and I can tell you, I'm not bringing up that parallel because Brian, there's there's not a whiff of indiscretion in Brian McLaren's life. He is a man of of true virtue, yeah, and and has helped a lot of other people through that kind of thing, actually. But I will also say that there are other people as famous as Jean Vanier about whom I know terrible stories and that they've just never become public. So I know other super, like, if I said their names, you'd be like, no, not him. And I'm telling you, yes, him, him too. Like, this is, this is absolutely what happens. But here's the interesting thing. I think listening to Josh talk, and I mean, I, I thought for, for people, for, for listeners who don't understand the context, like, who's this Bruxy Cavey? What's the big deal? Okay, Bruxy, first of all, I, I want to tell you about like my impression of him as a person, but also put him in context of evangelicalism. Okay, so him as a person, like if you were to meet Bruxy, he is the opposite of what probably most listeners of this podcast think of when they think of an evangelical pastor who fell because of sexual indiscretion. Like the guy is overweight. He's got like, he looks like he hasn't showered in a week. He wears like cargo shorts and Birkenstocks. He's got a scraggly ass beard. He wears a stupid fedora. He wears like big baggy clothes. He like non-threatening is the, is the word. Yeah. He's the kind of guy that, that, the, that queer eye would do a makeover on, on Netflix. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, you're totally no, he's exact, right. You're totally right. Yeah. Right. We, I, my wife and I religiously watch that show. Like, so he's just very, Dan, you're right. He's a non-threatening presence. He's, he's the, like the least likely mega church pastor you've ever met. You'd meet him and you'd be like, are you a homeless dude? Or do you have a church that 15,000 people attend in multiple venues? across Canada and you have book deals and he would never strike you as that. So that's Bruxy. And that's part, I think part of the reason, like when you heard about Bill Hybels giving like lingering hugs to women and, and inviting his female employees to his hotel rooms at conferences, you're like, you look at Bill, you look at him and, and you're like, Bill Hybels is like, he's a good looking guy. He's like, he's got his shit together. He could kind of be a corporate CEO type guy like this. And it's one of the things that maybe we can talk about that. I, I wonder like what Bruxy Cavey is going to do, because to me, I don't know where he goes or what skills he has, because he seems to me a, a pastor and that's it. That's all. I think he brought to it. He doesn't bring any, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is he doesn't bring any other cultural cachet. You know what I'm saying? He's mm. not like a well put together guy who can clean this shit up. That's not his vibe at all. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I, this might be insensitive, but like he can bag groceries for all. Yeah, I, care. I, I agree. I mean, oh, no, I agree. Whatever. I agree. <laughs> who but cares? I, I'm also you know? saying like, I agree. I, I'm not. I'm not like wishing for him to have a, a yeah. comeback or anything like that. I'm. I'm all. I'm saying all that just to say like he seems very unlikely to have fallen into this, which I think is why it's such a huge big red flag. Because even the most unlikely guy, interesting, looking at him, the way he carried himself, 
the way he performed his ministry, his whole message. He's, he seems like the least likely guy to have had an affair. And, and it wasn't it, like, look, it, what came out, it, it's clearly abuse if it started in a quote-unquote counseling oh, yeah. situation. And the fact yeah. that the church didn't call it abuse and Bruxy in his apology on his blog didn't call it abuse is shocking and, and terrible, and they need to correct that. And then before I, you know, toss it back over to you guys or to hear what you think, Josh, just for people like who's this Bruxy Cavey guy, when the emergent thing was happening around the turn of the millennium in the late 90s, there was it was a big amorphous group and it ended up kind of going off in different directions. And one direction obviously was the thing I was a part of called Emergent, Emergent Village, the Emerging Church Movement, that became kind of one stream. Another stream was very much counter to that, which was the Young Restless Reformed, and that was Driscoll, and that was the Acts 29 Network and things like that. But then there was this other kind of very quiet version that embraced a more Anabaptist theology, and it included people like Scott McKnight, Jeff Holzclaw, who was a big part of Emergent at the beginning, Greg Boyd, and Bruxy. And these are all people who ended up connecting with Northern Seminary in Chicago. And that became kind of the, oh, um, why am I blanking? Josh, help me out. The one You're talking about I'm, Fitch? David Fitch, the yeah. McDonald's guy. Yeah. <laughs> and their whole, but so David Fitch is a great example. Like his whole thing is he went to McDonald's every morning. They're like, we are the on the street Christians. We are the down to earth Christians. We're not looking for book contracts like you emergent guys or big speaking gigs. We're like about building intentional community. And David Fitch, like literally, He's like, I don't go to Starbucks. I go to McDonald's every morning and have coffee. And Bruxy was the same way. And it, I, I know Greg Boyd personally. Greg's that same way. I'd be as shocked, Josh, uh, if Greg ha- had a failing as you are with Bruxy. Because Greg, I've been to his house. He, he, he gives away all his money. He gets huge book contracts, gives everything away. He's a totally selfless, egoless person, to, as far as I can tell. So that's that version, and that version had, let, uh, let's just say very clearly, unlike Emergent, unlike Young Restless Reformed, that version of early 20th century evangelicalism had been scandal-free until Bruxy. They had, been, they had been models of integrity and virtue until Bruxy. One thing that's really actually encouraging about the Bruxy scandal is how well that church has handled it. You know, not having dug any deeper than sort of the main news articles and stuff, they seem to be doing everything right. They immediately brought in a unbiased third-party investigator. They put him on leave immediately. Now, I guess we don't know yet for sure if if they knew stuff earlier, you know, or whatever, but and they didn't and they didn't call it abuse. Well, they didn't call it abuse, but they they gave a rationale for that. They said, for now, we are going to only use the language that the investigator used in their third party findings, which, you know, OK. And we, we should talk about what kind of abuse it definitely is, what kind of abuse it might be. I mean, we can get into that uh, if you guys want to. 
But I wanted to talk briefly about the theological branding stuff. That That's the language I'm using for it. These different theological camps. And it goes along with his like, it's not religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. This kind of one of the oldest tricks in the book in North American Protestantism. But I'm just like, I'm sitting here thinking, how much should we just completely ignore the theological branding of these various pastors, churches, groups, you know, like if this is what it leads to across brands, then who gives a shit about the brand? And of course, theology does matter. It impacts all kinds of things. It, For instance, young women growing up in complementarian churches, that that stuff really matters. Doctrine matters. But the branding specifically of it, oh, we're filling this niche. I, I might be forever inoculated against that. I don't know. Uh, but maybe I'm not the target audience for it. Yeah, I, I would love to comment on that, Dan. I think because I think the theological aspect is one of the things that's so frustrating to me about this. Because again, like Tony was saying, Bruxy was is not a domineering leader. He does have like zero signs of like narcissistic personality disorder. He is not a Mark Driscoll. He like hardcore promoted like egalitarianism had like women in leadership everywhere. I have friends that are female pastors currently serving at the meeting house. Like when you would get in a room with Bruxy and you know, these other voices, he was never like jumping down anyone's throats. He was always very laid back, always just like willing to hear what people say, like super humble, uh, taught like simplicity and nonviolence and all this good, beautiful stuff. And then still something like this happens. So before I would I would have the, this critique, which I still think holds weight, where it's like, oh, part of the issue is we're not addressing shit theology. And this shitty theology is undergirding the behavior that these leaders are, are now, you know, doing basically like Driscoll shit theology led to a lot of the stuff he did with Bruxy. I don't think Bruxy has shit theology. I agree right. with most of Bruxy's theology. And yet still. Is it is it a system? Is this like system producing this shit? And now, like, regardless of theology across the board, like, what the fuck? Like, what do I do with that? Yeah. So like Mason Menenga, who's a, a, a theologian and podcaster and Twitter personality and a friend of mine, I was giving him some hard time about a tweet he posted the other day. And he actually took it down after we chatted. And he said, you know, something like, Despite what they want you to think, Christianity today and and Mars Hill are there's no difference between the two. And I challenged him on that, you know, and I was like, I mean, in I texted him because we text and chat on the phone. And he was like, Well, I mean that the the, the theology is basically the same. And I said, Okay, well, you know, you could say that. The, the point is not to, <laughs> to to recount my paternalistic conversation with Mason. It's more to say that he's right that the theology is similar, but it's not it's similar in Bruxy's case. Christianity Today, Hillsong Church, and Mars Hill and Acts 29, the theological similarities there are different, but there's a lot of overlap. Bruxy and Jesus Collective and these guys – it's not true. They are really distinct theologically in a lot of ways, and that didn't prevent it. So there's something going on that is not reducible, even close to the theological commitments, the doctrinal commitments of these communities. There's something personal. There's something, you know, person related that has to do with 
the particular leaders, the particular cultures of these ministries, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I just in general struggle trusting any kind of like megachurch pastor. And like, this is probably a totally unfair thing to say, because there's definitely exceptions to this. But I feel like in order to attain like a certain level of celebrity status, like you kind of have to be a piece of shit. Like to, to the kind of things required for you to get into certain positions, especially in like the regular business world, which a lot of the time the church just adopts the business world model and adds Jesus to it and then pretends it's somehow different. So like maybe the celebrity culture bit of it, does that, does that play into things regardless of theology? Am I being just way too overly cynical and brass saying that all megachurch pastors suck? Because probably that's not true. I mean, Greg Boyd is a megachurch pastor. And and I and love Greg. You it's love true. him. And Tony knows him personally and just talked about how legit he is. I mean, Bill Gates is a massive celebrity. He He eventually got divorced. He had a marriage that, you know, had been failing for a long time and perhaps cheated on his wife and perhaps used his power in ways I, I feel like I this is a story I haven't been following closely. So if I'm wrong about that, but also like legitimately has committed his life and most of his funds to, uh, you know, incredible change for the world and had, it's a, complicated. had, had a long-term affair, like cheated on his wife over the course of years. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> but the, the thing that I want to, the thing that I wanted to bring into this conversation here is I, and this is, this is sticky ground, uh, especially if you have been cheated on, then what I'm about to say might not feel very true to you. Uh, and, and I could be wrong, but I think there is a difference between people who have marriages that don't work and that causes divorce or cheating, which is not a good way to deal with a marriage that's not working. Right. Sometimes those relationships end up being the new relationship someone's in between adults of roughly the same age without a power differential. That's kind of what I'm getting at. People do do that, you know, and sometimes that is not the best choice they could have made. But it is not the same thing as using your power with an employee or someone someone who is under your pastoral care or Vanier, someone who is under your spiritual direction care. If you're a therapist, your client, these kinds of things that the two dudes at Christianity today, their uh, behavior was with their employees. Brian Houston's behavior from Hillsong was with his employees and other people of the church. Bruxy's the one relationship we know of, is was with someone coming for spiritual care. We don't know about the other two yet, or if there will even be more. And that is the thing. So when Bruxy described it as this was an extramarital extramarital affair that I admit to, that's all he's admitting to. Bro, you're twice as old as her, and she came to you for pastoral counseling. That is not simply an extramarital affair. It just isn't. It, it, it might also be an extramarital affair, but it's not only an extramarital affair. And that's the bit that's kind of sticking in my mind. And maybe that's just because of, you know, being a spiritual abuse researcher, thinking about those power dynamics and, and all of that. But that's the, I just want to throw that out there as like, that's a really important distinction for me as I think about all this stuff and compare it to, I've had friends who have cheated on their spouses. I'm still friends with them. You know, it, 
It it does happen. And it's not the same thing as abusing power for a sexual relationship. It just isn't. Yeah, I think that's fair. But also I'm trying to look it up because I'm pretty sure that, but it looks like the his website got taken down. I'm fairly confident that Bruxy acknowledges that there was a power differential within the relationship and that it was wrong in the confession that he published. I can't prove that because now it's taken down. Uh, okay. But I just, I want to throw that out there because I'm like, 90%. I know the church definitely acknowledged the power differential. Yeah. My most recent memory is that he was calling it an extramarital affair. That's, and- that's my memory of, of his confession too, but you're right. He may have nodded to it. I think a lot of the online outrage and Dan, you're reiterating that is that neither the church nor he called it abuse. And I think when you're in a counseling type relationship, which you're right, that's a conversation we should also have about whether pastors are even credentialed or, you know, should be doing that type of counseling with people. I have very strong feelings about that, but that's, I mean, that is a statutory situation. Like Bruxy may be in, like he, it's possible that he's in legal jeopardy because of that, you know, he was in a position of authority yeah. over the woman with whom he had what he called the extramarital affair. Like, let me just, because people don't know these sort of ethical standards from other industries, like, let me just tell you about the psychology ethical code, the APA ethics code. It does happen that therapists and psychologists fall in love sometimes with people that they see. And there are rules around this, right? So, Basically, it's like, look, if you eh, and I, don't quote me on the specific uh, consequences, but it's something like if you ever have sex with a client like that's it, you're you either lose your license or it's very close to that. Like you it is the kind of number one ethical breach that is highlighted in the ethics training in a doctoral psychology program. You do not have sex with your clients <laughs> like bold, highlighted rule number one kind of a thing. And there are rules like, you know, sometimes people do meet, they only do a couple sessions, they're really drawn to each other, and then you wait. You end that relationship, you wait a year, five years, there are different sort of guidelines for how long you wait, there's sort of some math around that, and some discretion around it. But it's like, they take so seriously the fact that as a clinician with someone who's in distress, coming to you for help, that you have so much status and power with that. And it's kind of fucking obvious that you do. And I I don't think that pastors not being trained in that or whatever, that's not a good enough excuse for me. If you are a pastor and don't know the kind of power you have over people, you are, you are perhaps have a mental disability or you are ignoring, are ignoring it for your own benefit. It's as clear as day. And so that's just to compare it to counseling. And and this is, I know, Tony, we talk about this a lot, the sort of institutional safeguards, but it's the big one. Don't have sex with your clients, you know? <laughs> well, it's not like Bruxy would have said, but it's okay to have sex with your parishioners. I mean, I'm sure that for the last 11 years, I bet his I bet his personal life has been tor- torturous, torturous, sure. because he's been selling books and speaking at conferences and leading a megachurch, knowing 
that at any, I mean, there are whole TV shows, right? There's whole TV series built on shit of like influential, popular people knowing that every, they could turn the corner and, and they're their past sins are going to come back and haunt them. But Dan, this got me thinking what you said about the, the psychological industry, because it kind of puts the lie to this, this standard that we've, that we of the four of us have probably, have probably all bought into that. Like, Oh, a Driscoll shitty Calvinist theology treats people like shit of, you know, not a surprise or whatever, you know, Catholic church, demands that its priests are celibate and then you know men act on their sexual urges with boys and with girls like that's what they get for having shitty theology but what what's the deal with bruxy because look it's not like i'm guessing i'm just gonna guess here if we if we analogize with psychology for a minute it's not like if you went to a psychological association meeting and were like you know, when the Freudian guy slept with his client, I was like, no surprise. But when the Jungian guy did it, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you, you know, yeah, that's good. Right? Yeah, right. They're not, they're not like, there's not saying like, oh, the Rogerians, they never sleep with their right. clients. Right, right. They're like, no, people suck. And and if there's anything, I guess, and I, I, look, I'm I'm reading through and teaching an online class on Augustine's Confessions. For Lent and and a lot of people, of course, Augustine is sh- shat upon by everybody these days. And I'm sure Bruxy hates you know Ag- uh, uh, that whole Anabaptist world. They cannot stand Augustine's theology, and and Augustine did seem obsessed with sex. But every time he mentioned sex, every single time he mentioned sex in the Confessions, which is a, a lot. I mean, it's something he he's obviously distraught about his past sexual behavior before he became baptized at, at age 33, he always writes about it. It's, it's always has to do with ego or vanity or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's, it, it's always talking about himself and it, it's not really about the sexual act ever. It's always about what he sees as a weakness in his own character, right? That he's trying to overcome through you know, illicit sexual encounters or whatever. So I guess at least what Bruxy, that Bruxy's case tells us is no one is without sin. Like no, no theological camp is more or less likely to fall into this terrible, abusive behavior. No pastor, no matter where he went to seminary, isn't potentially going to fall in love with one of his parishioners and have sex with her. Like, that's what happened. And even the frumpiest, most hobbit-looking dude you could imagine, it happened with this guy, who's a freaking Anabaptist, you know? Yeah, it, it, we're, we're, no, nobody's immune. Nobody's immune. And you might hate the doctrine of original sin, but, like, Augustine didn't just make that shit up for no reason. Like there's, <laughs> there, there's something about our fallibility and our fallenness that he put his finger on that, you know, billions of people have said, yeah, I, I know what he's talking about. I feel like we don't need to get into the, what kind of abuse was it thing? I mean, let me, I'll just briefly summarize the, the conversation and people can look it up if they want. The victim is wanting to call it clergy sex abuse. 
and the Daniel Strickland, who Danielle Strickland, who I think is the 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 head of the elders or something like that. She's she was a teaching board. pastor. Okay, teaching pastor. Yeah. She's sort of advocating for this victim and, and interacting with the rest of the board or whatever. She's I don't know, maybe also calling for that. That hinges, at least if you use the APA definition of sexual abuse, it hinges on the issue of consent. Legally at 23, this person was, you know, could consent in that sense. Uh, Power differential wise is an open question whether she could consent. That's her contention that she's 23, he's 46, uh, and and he is her spiritual leader, so she can't consent. People that mileage may vary on that for different people. It may also come out that there is like quite a few more victims, in which case that would also color how we probably think of what's going on. Uh, So I I don't think we need to spend a bunch of time on that. I think that's really interesting. From my perspective, it is certainly an abuse of power and it is certainly spiritual abuse, whether it is also clergy sexual abuse, like we often see in, you know, Catholic priest scandals and stuff like that. Are we cool with kind of just leaving that there? Unless you guys have stuff you really wanted to share about that. We can hear it. I would just say, should, you know, maybe, I don't know, Dan, if you want to tackle this now, we've talked about it in past episodes in passing, but this question of whether pastors should be providing counseling to people, and I won't even call it counseling, let's call it therapy, okay? Because that's, yeah. the, the, that's the term most people use right now. And it's got a finer point on a more. It's it's got a more clinical or vibe to that word therapy. I think than counseling, right? So if you're meeting with somebody in your office for 50 minutes and you're doing it once a week, how is that not therapy? Like mm-hmm. you're offering them therapy. You did not learn how to provide therapy when you went to seminary. I don't know where Bruxy went to seminary, Josh. Maybe you know, but. He's not a licensed therapist in Canada, for sure. Yeah, he's not. He didn't go through licensure. He didn't go through the internship process. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to do continuing ed in uh, therapy, like like every social worker and every licensed marriage and family therapist has to do. He's doing none of that. Right. And so I said this on Twitter, and maybe I've said it here before, but I at Fuller Sem- at Fuller Seminary, we've talked about this, Dan, but. I took David Augsburger, and, and many people did for generations, for pastoral counseling, and he made it abundantly clear in that class, your job is to meet with somebody one time, and then you refer them to a therapist, because you're not a therapist, you're a pastor. And it made it very clear. And it so it's it's been shocking to me in the last 25 years since leaving seminary, getting out into the broader church world, how few pastors actually behave that way. I mean, I know pastors who never even went to seminary, never even took a single class in pastoral counseling, and they spend a lot of their time doing pastoral counseling, or that's even their job title at their church is like pastoral of care and pastor of care and counseling. Like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. So I I don't know if, if Josh, if you've got like to shed on that from being part of the Jesus Collective, or if that are uh, those are conversations in that world that that you guys talked about um so like I, I don't have much to say in regards to that i mean i agree with you tony i i always have had a hard time like with the uh like pastoral counseling bit um 
especially because like the first experience I had trying to go to therapy, even though the person was licensed, they like tried to treat me as like, like a pastoral relationship is weird. And uh, they argued with me about how the Bible worked. And so I never went back to them. It's like, I have like, I'm like, you know, whatever, forget that. But I know like within Jesus collective, we never really talked about much stuff like that. I mean, there is a large group of people within Jesus collective that do uh, licensed, like, um, oh, what do they call it? It's not therapy, like basically like spiritual direction or coaching, they call it. And so like, I've taken coaching and spiritual direction courses that you can get like accredited in through these, you know, other organizations connected with Jesus collective, but they are also very clear that like, this is not therapy. Like that's not what you're doing. And if there's something that comes up, that you can't handle your job is to like uh, your professor said, refer them to a psychologist or, or whoever would be the best suited, you know, for their care and needs. But yeah. Outside of that, I don't, that was never like a major conversation at all. At least not that I know about. I think I have too many thoughts to adequately respond to you, Tony. <laughs> and I want to be able to cover the Christianity Day and Hillsong stuff. So then can I just ask Josh one more quick Please question for before it, yeah. we move on? And I, I think, Josh, let me just ask you this, knowing Bruxy and knowing the Meeting House, what's the future of the Meeting House? Because a lot of times when stuff like this happens, these churches who were built by a charismatic church planter who became a megachurch pastor, they fall apart like that. He was the glue who kept it together. Surely we saw that with Driscoll, but we're seeing it happen at Willow Creek. It's happened a lot of other places too. What's What do you think about the Meeting House? Yeah. So this is going to be a hundred percent speculation. <laughs> it's just a guess. I could be completely wrong, but based off what I know and have experienced uh, with Bruxy, I don't think the meeting house is going to crumble because I don't think it was built on Bruxy. Their model for church, like Sunday for them, isn't even the thing. Like that's not the important thing for them. It's built on like these house church things that they do. So they have a Sunday service and then you have like these weekly gatherings that are like long-term relational gatherings between groups of people specific to like location because different locations have different needs, which is why they have different pastors at all of the different meeting house campuses that like look and act and behave separately from Bruxy. So I think that the meeting house, actually their model of leadership is set up in such a way that it's not going to collapse uh, with Bruxy now gone. I could be a hundred percent wrong, but I guess we're going to find out. I think it would, it's an interesting case study at the very least to see if like, Oh, even though Bruxy still fell, is there something to be said about this alternative style of like structuring your leadership within a church um, or a mega church specifically? And I think only time will be able to tell us that, but I think it's an interesting question for sure. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will dive into Christianity Today and Hillsong Church. Sweet. Sounds good. So in case you really like listening to Tony and I talk and you're like, man, I want to hear more of Dan and Tony. Well, then you should definitely become a patron because the most recent patron exclusive episode uh, is one of these Generation Gulch 
Generation Gap Culture Hour episodes, which I mentioned at the top of today's episode, where we talk about current events and and other sort of issues relating to modern American Christianity. And in this last one, we talked about becoming an adult, older men losing friends. We talked about child rearing. We, we really got we really dug into the generation gap aspect of it. And it was a really interesting and good conversation. So and if you guys are patrons, I really recommend listening to that one. I thought it went really well. The next patron exclusive episode toward the end of this month will be uh, resuming our four episodes, one for each gospel with myself and Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. We've done Matthew and Mark. Those are listenable through the patron feed and Luke is coming up next. So to become a patron and have access to all of those patron exclusive episodes, including the back catalog, and to have access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, you can go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. There's a link in the show notes. It's five bucks a month. And there's a sliding scale. If you can't afford that, you can shoot me an email. That email is in the show notes. All right. Back to my conversation with the two Joshes and Tony. All right. So what I'd like to do is let's briefly roll through the Hillsong story because I don't, you know, any insight you guys have would be great. I don't know anything about Hillsong, so I might not have much to add. Just a reminder, Brian Houston, co-founder of Hillsong Church, which currently services 150,000 members across 30-ish campuses in many countries, uh, started in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. And this guy, you know, he's, he's in this legal trouble already for purportedly covering up his father's sexual abuse uh, over many decades. And he had this experience, some, some substance use, some inappropriate sexual communication, stuff to the effect of like, if I were with you, I'd want to be cuddling and kissing you, I think is a quote from one of the, uh, I don't think I'm mixing that up with Mark Galley. Anyway, I think that's Brian Houston. And, and then, you know, like the church releases this statement, you know, we, we paid her back the money she had donated the church, uh, quote, in order to bring resolution in a spirit of love and care and to abide by her request for confidentiality. And I'm like, her f-ing request for confidentiality? If she's the one who requested it, you guys are thinking you're lucky stars. And then at this point, he was supposed to step down, but he basically didn't. So then the board has taken some action, which I think is a good sign. But anyway, that's that situation. And he has now stepped down for the rest of 2022, at least, while they figure this stuff out and, and while he battles this legal case about covering up, you know, criminal activity of covering up sexual abuse. So that just dropped a couple of days ago, right? Yet two days ago, one of you sent the link, I think. Any any color or context here? I would just say that this is this is what I was talking about before in regards to Bruxy. Brian Houston is the opposite of Bruxy. Okay? In every way. Brian Houston is like uh, a big, strong personality, flies private jets, hangs out with Hollywood stars, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so he when he falls everyone's just like no surprise hmm. he he was kind of he was a rock star pastor bruxy might have been a pastor of a mega church but he was not a rock star in any sense you wouldn't have ever thought that of him yeah. you would think that of of brian houston and then the other thing i think as part of context that was also in this article that i sent 
you can't talk about Brian Houston without, as, as they do in this article, mentioning like multiple other Hillsong pastors at ultimate at, at other campuses that have fallen, most notably Carl Lenz, yeah. who was the personal pastor to Justin Bieber. And, you know, there's this picture of him and Bieber walking down the street, and Lenz is like shirtless and tatted out, and it I mean has his pants and and like must have like three or four percent body fat and has his pants so low you can like literally see his pubic bone you know yeah very very immodest by the way yeah and he was whatever sleeping with his housekeeper i don't even know he he met this woman through like i don't know clubs or some sort of social channel and didn't tell her that he was a pastor that's apparently that story but but it was cheating on his wife with her and stuff yeah. like that. So, but but then like a couple in the in a Dallas location fell and a, another guy who was like at the South Carolina location. I'm I'm just remember off the top of my head remembering all this. So, that whole that whole system like uh, as again, as opposed to the Meeting House and Northern Seminary and the Jesus Collective, that whole system is based on power and celebrity and selling millions of dollars worth of albums every year and having CCLI license on yeah. all these songs that are sung in churches around like Dan how many how many Hillsong churches do you think every listener would know if if you know songs you mean half a dozen oh yeah oceans i mean i i am like very shout to the lord yeah shout to the lord i'm very out of that world so i feel like I have but, to have other people tell me, oh, this is a Hillsong song. I had never heard Oceans until like two years ago or something. I guess maybe it was pre-pandemic. There's also a, a recent documentary that came out about Hillsong called Hillsong, a mega church exposed. It's like a docu-series mm. rather that I have not seen it, uh, but it looks like it just recently dropped and they're catching some heat for that as well. So that's in this mix like Hillsong is riddled with issues <laughs> basically okay. yeah yeah I mean I take your point Tony about you know again we don't want to make the we don't want to make the mistake of equating theology and culture with personal moral decisions that people make but yeah a lot less surprised in that world if what you're basically chasing is the same thing that other celebrities are chasing you're you're just sort of in a poor position to be a Christian minister. Yeah. Were, were, were you more surprised when Jimmy, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker fell or when Jean Vanier fell? Like Vanier, right. Is, of course. Yeah. Yeah. This is like Brian Houston versus Bruxy. Uh, Bruxy yeah. Kaby. Yeah. But again, it shows no one's immune. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Christianity today. Cause I think we are going to have some more kind of context here. Uh, so just again, a uh, quick reminder, uh, Mark Galley and Ola Tukunbo Olawoye, also known as Tox, uh, T-O-K-S, his nickname. There's a report about, you know, both of them. Gali was the editor-in-chief, and Olawoye was the advertising, like, chief advertising officer, essentially. And they were a part of, like, a group of, you know, men who went golfing together, including the Richard Shields, the head of HR. And there was basically just, like, I don't know, dozens maybe is the right word for it. If you count it all together, dozens of allegations against these two men, uh, all of which went through HR, but none of which were ever acted upon by the executive board of Christianity today. 
all the while, Tony, some of that during some rebranding of the of the company under beautiful orthodoxy, which I'm sure you'll you can give us some some color there. Uh, and just some really good reporting from Daniel Silliman and the other investigative team there. Massive failure of institutional safeguarding. Uh, lots of sort of uh, apparent um, sexism and chauvinism. And, you know, uh, just a just a shitty, toxic work culture at a place that described itself as an oasis of goodness, tru- truth and beauty. So, yeah, maybe give us some context here, Tony, because I know you have been yeah. around them during the years that this article is about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. First of all, you got to know that Galley was he was at CT for a long time and he was the number two man for most of, for most of that time. Okay. And then he got promoted. <laughs> you also should know that. OK, so how Galley made the news when he when he retired from CT is he wrote an anti-Trump editorial yeah. that was one of the first evangelical voices against Trump. And it was like, as he was walking out the door, he took this parting shot at Trump. It pissed a lot of evangelicals off who were pro-Trump, made a lot of other people be like, oh my God, it's the like, the this is Christianity Today 2.0. They're finally right. found a conscience. You know, it, meanwhile, like in that, you know, but we'll never change our minds on on abortion and we'll never change our minds on gay marriage, but we'll change our mind on Trump or whatever. Um, And then like within a week of leaving Christianity today, he was received into the Roman Catholic church. So there was something um, unsavory about, look, Christianity today has for a long time held itself up as the gatekeeper of American evangelicalism. And Mark Galley was the gatekeeper of the gatekeepers. He wrote the editorial in the magazine every month. He had his own blog on uh, the Christianity Today website, which he continued to write a blog for them after leaving their employ. And I'm guessing he no longer will have a blog. I'm sure. CT after this article. I had several personal interactions with him, but the one I remember the most is I was sitting with him at the National Pastors Convention. It was at the Town and Country Resort in San Diego, where we often had our conferences. Kind of a rundown. You think Frank Sinatra is going to walk around the corner at any minute? It's like stuck in mid '60s era. It, it hasn't been updated. Hell yeah! But it's got it's got this old kind of charm, a little bit rundown, rough around the edges charm. But that. And it was affordable, which is why we a lot of times had emergent conventions and national pastors conventions and national youth workers conventions were at this place. And I remember sitting with, I mean, I could walk you to the table where we were sitting. I I remember it that vividly. It might've been, this might've been like 2003. And I was talking to him about emergent and how we were appearing in the, uh, in the pages of Christianity today. And, and, um, but, but we got around to talking about the atonement and I had started to think about the atonement. I ended up publishing a book on the atonement in 2015, but I was, I was beginning to do theological work around that. And I, I was talking to him about it and he said, oh, well, Christianity today, we have a position on the atonement and it is penal substitution. And I was like, I said to him, I'm like, you're a magazine. Why would a magazine have a doctrinal position on the atonement? 
aren't you journalists? <laughs> yeah. And, it, and that's, but see, the light bulb went on for me there. They were not journalists. They're advocates of right. a particular version of American evangelicalism. That's what they were. They weren't really journalists. Of course, they're reporting on stuff that's going on. But then it started to make sense to me about why they would criticize Brian McLaren in their pages, but they wouldn't criticize John Piper, even though I knew everybody who worked at Christianity Today thought John Piper was a freaking wingnut. They would not criticize him publicly in their magazine, but they would publish. So they wouldn't criticize people to their right, but they would criticize people to their left. Right. So I'm like, oh, this isn't the Christian version of the New York Times or the Atlantic. Like they tell you that they are, but they're they're really not that. And Galley was this, he'd been there forever. I mean, like 30 years. He was an old curmudgeon type of guy kind of looked like an old school journalist with a bushy mustache and kind of like untucked clothes that were 10 years out of date and and gruff kind of rough around the edges and and a little gruff like you'd think a guy like that would be and this is what's interesting to me i guess in that article the christianity they self-published on themselves and like you dan i think good good on them for doing that and tim dalrymple the current publisher and president of Christianity Today International. I think I know him a little bit. He has a great, very conservative, but has a great deal of integrity, I think. Mark Galley in that article is so tone deaf. He's he's like accused of saying something about a female employee when she bends over. And he's like, oh, I don't remember saying that. I probably just referred to her as eye candy. Like, what? Bro, like, that's the same like thing. That, <laughs> like that's better, dude? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, like he doesn't even, he's still, that, that what comes across to me in that article is he still doesn't get it. He's like, what's the big deal? I referred to a female employee as I can't, I, I touched, I touched women on the small of the back, you know, in, in order to let them know his physical presence is important. Not from a freaking 60 year old boss yeah, to a 25 year old intern or whatever. No, it's dude, not important. No. Not not only is it not important, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So the just to be clear, because I actually haven't laid this out. So the, the specific allegations with Galley and and talks are like inappropriate touching, hands on legs, sometimes combined with language about how their wives have let themselves go, hints at being open to an affair with certain staffers, and then a lot of these like small of the back hand resting on a butt uh, for a photo, uh, and then a lot of these comments. Yeah, women golfers bending over. Just like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, honestly, it's a little bit Trumpian. Yeah, or Mad Men. It's like, it's yeah. like Mad Men era stuff. But it's a little bit of the Hollywood access tapes. Yeah. Kind of locker room locker talk. Locker room talk. And, yes. and he's even now saying, oh, maybe I... Basically, he's saying maybe I engaged in some locker room talk after his op-ed that was like these things make Trump unex unfit morally. So it it is like, yeah, I, I wonder if there's a real blindness personally. You'd think if he was had engaged a PR firm or something, he would not have spoken about it that way. So I'm assuming that that's unfiltered him and he really doesn't get it. I think that's right. Right. I, I think you're, yeah, I think you're right about that. 
there's no spin and polish on his responses in that article. And there probably weren't when he was being investigated. He wasn't investigated. He was reported on, right? Mm -hmm. By, and and like you say, CT seemed to give these reporters free reign um, and no kind of editorial strictures when they were reporting on themselves, which, you know, that's good. That's an organization should have that. National Public Radio has an ombudsman who reports on NPR and you hear that person, like any employee can come to that person with ethics breaches and, and they investigate yeah. them without being in jeopardy of, of getting in trouble with the bosses. So that's all I think about that, Dan. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just for let the listener know that uh, we had a little edit there and that's Tony's way of uh, poking poking the bear. So before we kind of wrap up the three, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Christianity Today. So lest we think that what's what's at stake here is merely sort of work environment, which, of course, I'm using big scare quotes around merely. This is the professionalism and careers of all the women who work at this company including their potential job prospects for the future. I mean, I really encourage people to read the article. It's very thoroughly reported. There'll be a link in the show notes. You you should read it and get the detail, but really a bad workplace, especially for the women. But lest we think that merely that, which is quite bad, is what's at stake. The other dude literally pled guilty to soliciting sex from a teenage girl and was sentenced to three years in prison in 2017. And the allegations against him go back at least to 2010. I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but maybe earlier. And so it is not like this is merely about workplace etiquette or whatever. Like these kinds of flags, like that guy should have had a record at CT that could be subpoenaed in a court of law when he was, if he were to go on trial for, you know, like that should have been part of his record in, in whatever way is appropriate for a a corporation to hold, you know, and there are safeguards around that. But the fact that he was never written up, like you have to wonder what did that contribute to his feeling of invulnerability in pursuing sexual relationships with other people, including minors. And so the implications of these institutional safeguards are very real and go beyond the institutions themselves. Josh, anything to add on, on Christian today before we sort of talk about all three and sort of these kind of combined thoughts? I mean, honestly, unfortunately, like the thing, and Tony pointed this out earlier, the thing with this whole conversation for me, the only one that bothers me, well, they all bother me. Don't hear me say that wrong. The only one that like had a, visceral like holy shit reaction was the bruxy thing right for me in my mind i was like of course that shit happens at christianity today of course that's going to happen at hillsong so like i'm just cynical and jaded about it so like those more so are just like ammunition for me to be a dick but like the bruxy thing just felt different Mm -hmm. uh because it i mean i think like we adequately talked about it 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 was different but i don't yeah i don't i mean i nothing constructive to add to christianity today bit I think that as more information comes out, we may find that it was different, like in terms of the entirety of the process. Like if if the meeting house 
continues to handle things as well as they're handling them now, then we may have less fallout than if they had handled them like these other institutions have been handling them. Um, Tony, I knew you had uh, sort of an opening salvo for the combining the three. Yeah, I, I guess this is one thing. And again, this is total, you know, this is my, only my own perception of, of these three incidents. But I think that, you know, Christianity Today, like you mentioned, Dan, they, Galley kind of pioneered this beautiful orthodoxy. And I use the term gatekeeper. They really held themselves up as they were the arbiter of good even American evangelicalism with a strong... And you can look this, you can just look on their website and you see this or look through their back issues with a strong pietism. And that is, they were preaching that your actions and your behavior as a Christian really matters. And a lot of things about being a good witness in American society. And, you know, so pietism and piety were a big part at Christianity today, which we maybe more equate with, with Wesleyanism than we do with the Calvinism of Christianity today. But anyways, I think pietism was a really big part of that, and they held themselves up as the standard bearers of that version of Christianity. And they would have looked at Brian Houston and Hillsong and been like, yeah, we're not that kind of Christian. We're no private jets and tattoos and hanging out with Justin Bieber. That's not us. We're kind of bookish, and we're committed to Wheaton College and the life of the mind, this kind of thing. Very much like the David Brooks deal that we've talked about in the past. That Tim Keller, that's their tribe. Ruxy's tribe, Jesus Collective, and the, the whole evangelical Anabaptist movement, similarly, very concerned about pietism and right living, and similarly would have looked at Hillsong and been like, we're not that type of yeah. Christian. We're yeah. not that version. Those guys who are, they're more like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. And we're, we're down to earth. We're, we're house church. We're, we're barely scraping by financially. We give our money away. How Christians live really matters. And it's interesting that of the three we've talked about today, two of them kind of, in some ways held themselves up as a little bit better version of Christianity. Hillsong didn't go around looking at Bruxy and being like, we're a better version of Christianity than that. They wouldn't have even ever even considered Bruxy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He wouldn't even been on the radar for them. They're, they're an atheological, non-theological Christian movement. So I guess that's just an interesting, uh, again, uh, to, to the point of like, it, can ha it happens to the best of them. It happens to everybody. Yeah, I, I want to comment on uh, two of the things you just said. One, it's just just because it strikes a nerve with me, like this idea that you pointed out um, with like Christianity Today and the Anabaptist movement, where it's like, we're like, we're not those kind of Christians, but then also it comes tinged with like a, we're like the real Jesus people. And that drives me so nuts. Like, this is just me soapboxing. There are so many like Christian deconstruction podcasts out there right now that that's the whole thing is we're the real Jesus people. If only you knew the real gospel, if only you had the real theology, knew the real Jesus, then none of this kind of stuff would happen. And I think that is just false. And this conversation today and the observations you made, Tony, just show that that's bullshit. <laughs> so that's that's important to me. And then the second thing I wanted to address and maybe this is going to make me sound really stupid, but 
Dan, I'm wondering psychologically if there is a reason, uh, because just an observation, I've noticed a lot of times when there are organizations or people that are very, very strong about something, they then turn out to like be that thing. So like how many times have you heard of like the pastor who is super anti-gay people, like extremely so, and then, oh, turns out that they, they were gay. Or they're like super pious. This is the Christian way to live. This is how to do things. This is how to do it. And then they're not doing that. Or like people with the Hybels rule. Don't have men and women together. Blah, 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 blah. Press it, press it, press it, press it, press mm-hmm. it. And then turns out, boom, they're the ones doing that thing. So like, should that, should that be a red flag? I don't know. Because then like anytime anybody says literally anything, you could be like, you're only saying that because that's you. But it also yeah. seems like there's something to that, which is why I said it might make me sound stupid, but just an observation. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be person to person, situation to situation. But there is, yeah, I mean, projection is a real thing. We we do we do end up talking about the stuff that we're preoccupied with. I think that's probably the safest way of saying it. Why we're preoccupied with it, then that would be person to person, situation to situation. So you could have someone who's really anti-gay because they're secretly gay. That would be a reason they could be preoccupied. But they could also be preoccupied with it because, I don't know, they were bullied by a gay person or their, you know, their family split up over their brother being gay. I mean, who knows, right? There could be other reasons for preoccupation, and we should be careful not to jump to conclusions without evidence. You know, this the real Jesus people thing I think is a really good point and really interesting Josh, try, like it makes me think of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And we brought this up a little bit, Tony, with Mike Cosper. And I think that he does believe this. And I think a lot of people believe this in about their own theology. Well, if you really understood law versus gospel, or if you really understood uh, that you're a sinner saved by grace, if you really understood uh, and I think new agey, like super lefty people do this too. If you just really saw yourself as a beloved child of the universe, if you, you know, if you just really got it, that what we're teaching is accurate, then dot, 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 these things. So I think the takeaway is like good, healthy, accurate, whatever you want to call it, theology is not a 99% effective vaccine. It just isn't. It might be. effective. And we have all this language because of COVID, right? So maybe it's something like this. The the culture and theology of the Jesus Collective and these Anabaptist sort of networks is like a vaccine that is 85% effective, 90% effective. Christianity Today has a 70% effective vaccine and Hillsong is like barely better than placebo. It's like 30% effective. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, whatever. The numbers are whatever the numbers are, but none of them are 100% effective. It does have some protective factors. If you are ordained into a denomination with really good pastoral counseling training, good mental health training, good sexual harassment training, good reporting systems, good accountability systems, you know, all right, we have something like a cumulative 90% vaccine, 90% effective vaccine against the worst kinds of, of stuff. And independent fundamentalist Baptist churches or completely unconnected non-denominational churches led by a charismatic person with no seminary training 
all right, they've got a 30% effective vaccine. Like they really have no protections much at all to speak of for certain kinds of offenses. Is that a good way of thinking of it in terms of like, it's on a continuum, but none of it's entirely effective. I like it, Dan. I mean, I I do think that theology does make a difference, Mm -hmm. but I think you're right to make the point. I think what's the point is and, and why it's so shocking to all of us that a guy like Bruxy would have fallen into this is that no no one is immune. No one's immune. I think we would all agree, we might even be able to say uh, he objectively has better theology, Bruxy does, than uh, Brian Houston. But it, it didn't make him immune from terribly sinful behavior. And I'll use theological language for this. Terribly sinful behavior that no one is immune from. We're just not immune, and you can dismiss the the doctrine of original sin if you want, that's fine, but in some way, in your own theology, whether it's Christian or post-Christian or deconstructed or whatever, make room for human fallibility, because you can, whatever, G.K. Chesterton, you know, said, original sin is like the one doctrine which can't, which is like what, what, what? empirically verified or something. Yeah, like empirically that. Yeah. verified through evidence. Like yeah. basically, look around. So don't call it original sin if you don't like that idea that it comes from Adam and Eve or whatever. But at least take account for sinfulness and human fallibility and our our seemingly infinite capacity for hurting each other. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And, and I mean, I think too, even just maybe to give someone some other theological language if they don't like the original sin thing uh like within buddhism they talk about basically having these different traits with inside of you uh like positive and negative and that depending on which ones you water the most those ones will come forward but all human beings have the capacity for tremendous good and tremendous evil so i agree with that i don't like the word original sin but like i also it's just a semantics thing for me and then i think it is used in shitty ways but I think like to me that it's just obvious, like nobody is immune from these things, but also two quick question. Why do you think it is that uh, when this kind of stuff happens, I mean, I, I have my, uh, my answer to this, but why do you think it is that people lose their minds so much more when these kind of things happens? Whereas if it was like the CEO of Nike or like something like that, I think there is now like a, there's a different register to it. Like there's a spiritual aspect and I think that weighs differently, but that's a critique that like a friend gave me recently. Like, Oh, why do you only care when, when pastors fail? I'm like, well, I think pastors put themselves on a pedestal. Also the Bible says something about like those who teach da da da. I don't know. But do you think that's worth noting? Yeah. I think hypocrisy is probably the, the shortest answer. There's just direct, you're claiming the mantle of something directly opposite. I think like the CEO of Nike would be most in hot water if it was like, oh, he contributed to the anti-CRT legislation or, you know, like that kind of a thing would be the version. Oh, oh, you think you support all these black athletes, but you're actually like trying to keep kids from learning about systemic racism. That would be that kind of hypocrisy, you know, a company that celebrates athletes of all genders and races or, you know, something like that. So I, I'm thinking it's hypocrisy, Tony. Look, the, the CEO of Nike doesn't take his position because he's setting himself up as a moral exemplar. You know, 
I, I had a therapist, a Buddhist therapist, tell me one time when I said, maybe, Dan, maybe I've told this story before, and if so, I apologize, but but it was only on the patron feed, so now everybody gets now to hear it. Now everyone can hear it. Bless them. They're so lucky. Go ahead. It's like, I said, to her, am I a narcissist? And, you know, my ex keeps saying I'm a narcissist. Am I a narcissist? And she said, you know, Tony, when I wake up in the morning, I don't think to myself, I want to climb into a pulpit, clip a microphone on my shirt, have spotlights pointed at me, and spend 25 minutes telling people how they should live their lives the coming week. And she's like, very few people actually want to do that or to write books about how you should understand the divine creator of the universe. That's what you want to do. So she's like, I think anybody who does what you do as a preacher and a Christian author is probably a bit of a narcissist because you think you've got something to tell the world. She's like, I don't think that about myself. I don't think I have anything to tell the world. So there is a, a Phil Knight or whatever, the CEO of Nike, whoever it is now, you know, doesn't hasn't set himself up to say, like, I'm going to tell you how to live your lives. He's like, I'm going to make a shitload of money for the people who own Nike stock. That's all I do. And if I want to sleep with my vice president, I can sleep with my vice president. I might get in a little hot water with the board, but it's 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 a different thing. So I think, Josh, that's probably why that pastors are held to a higher standard, because we're selling a different thing. We're selling some kind of moral righteousness. Yeah. Uh, one note I wanted to throw in just from the spiritual abuse angle. So my scale has like six subscales and four of these are about the events themselves. And they're basically like four types or four aspects of spiritual abuse. And the one that I, that I kept coming up against as I read these articles was the first one, which is called maintaining the system. And this is anything that like, it's basically the institution protecting itself through various means. So that can be things like being shunned or ignored by the group, uh, your, your community abandoning you. It can be pressuring uh, victims to forgive abusers while abuse is going on. It's, it can be victim blaming. It can be promoting, protecting uh, abusive individuals by the institution. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, especially the Christianity Today article, which goes into a lot of detail. Um, I haven't read anything more detailed about Hillsong and how they've gone about this stuff. From what I can tell thus far, the meeting house is trying to avoid doing this kind of thing. And they are taking it seriously, bringing in third parties immediately. Like the difference between the the stories in my mind is largely along the continuum of this particular issue of how is the institution propping itself up protecting itself and protecting its leaders. And that is such a maintainer of abuse. That's, that is why there could have been dozens of women over these years. That is why there was nothing on talks work record by the time he was publicly charged with a crime, you know, like that maintaining the system facet of spiritual abuse is a big variable. And I think one of the variables maybe for how effective your vaccine is to use that language is in the community you're in, if something does happen, how quickly do the wagons circle? We saw this with Driscoll. We saw this with Ravi. We saw this with Bill Hybels. How quickly do they circle? How airtight is that defense going to be? Do they bring in NDAs? Do they, you know, all that stuff. 
that is one of the major variables of how abusive a system can be. Yeah, that and that reminds me too, in McLaren's new book, he has a line. I actually, I wrote it down because I thought this might come up. And he said, all too often, the Christian industrial project reminds me less of a religion and more of the tobacco, fossil fuel, and weapons industry, Jeez. willing to harm millions of people to keep their businesses going. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. Yeah, and the and the reasoning on its face for some of that is, well, we're in the soul winning business. Uh, and if the fossil fuels industry did destroy the earth and saved a billion souls from hell while it did so, then that would be well worth it. And that's a lot of the fuel for these, you know, frankly, shitty justifications is that eternal price of souls saved from hell, from eternal conscious torment. And that is where the doctrine and theology really does matter. And I think that, you know, to connect that back, if I'm on the board at the meeting house, as opposed to I'm on the board at Christianity Today in 2005, right? Is that weighing part of my internal decision as one of the people dealing with something? I think the people at the meeting house go, no, <laughs> like Bruxy is not single-handedly saving souls from hell. And if he's really doing this, he should not be the pastor. And so let's bring someone in. I mean, I can't speak exactly to their theological state of mind, but that would be an instance where the theology would matter in terms of the real politic of it all. I, I think for those people who are familiar with the Willow Creek situation with Bill Hybels, there was a lot of that. There was like a year of, oh, we investigated it. There's nothing there. Maybe there's a little something there. It's not as bad as you think. And, you know, like a lot of voices inside the system trying to protect it before finally the outside voices brought it down, brought Hybels down at least. And then what's, of course, doubly ironic in that situation is John Ortberg, who was one of the voices who brought down Bill Hybels, ended up getting taken down from Menlo Park Presbyterian. Similarly, for a different, totally different thing for like covering up stuff that his son had done. But there again, the system tried to protect him because yep. he was the brand. He was the brand. Yep. And it, there, I think that's good that it's part, that's part of your scale. And I, you got to wonder if that's why galley at ct was that this stuff was ignored for so long you know dan you made this point early it doesn't seem like bruxy's sins were known to people at the meeting house maybe it'll come out later that they were and they yeah. were covered up but at this point it seems like it was a great shock to, to all those people mm -hmm. i mean i know that i've corresponded with greg boyd and who's friends with bruxy and it's was a great shock and a to terrible heartbreak to him. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up here, you know, I, I just want to give us space to, th to just throw out into the void, perhaps some of the bigger questions that this is sort of prompting us to think about. And I don't know that these have answers. Uh, maybe they will be, you know, fodder for future episodes. If you guys do have thoughts on, on either of mine, please feel free. But I have a, I have a couple the first is something that I think I've said before around sort of spiritual abuse stuff, certainly around Driscoll. Like what kind of paradigm 
change is needed around sort of power in general, the way that it is yielded by politicians, pastors, institutions. How can you inoculate the masses and can you inoculate the masses to keep our vaccine uh, metaphor going? Like how many people will always, no matter what, look for charismatic leaders to follow and will do so ignoring any kind of safeguards or maybe even excited by the fact that there are no safeguards. I, I do wonder if part of the allure of Trump is his danger, that there is something that gets people off about that. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody does, uh, but it's related. And another one is my, my second of the two is how deep does this rot go? By which I mean within evangelicalism, within male and like toxic masculine culture, within generational differences, you know, like like 30 years from now, when all the boomers are gone from all of these institutions and not that it's only boomers, but like, you know, that kind of sexism that was very clearly at play in the Christianity Today atmosphere that sort of thing is just going to be less common as younger people end up taking these mantles of power is how much of this rot is related to sort of generational stuff that needs to go away. How much of it is endemic to being human? These are the questions that I find myself thinking about. Well, clergy, spiritual gurus have been having affairs with people since there were shamans, since the, you know, since there, since there were patriarchs, like this has been, since there were witch doctors, since there were priests, since there were you imams, like you rabbis, you name it. This is just endemic to the human situation that a certain number of persons who are in spiritual authority positions will Use that position to take advantage of other people and in some ways, if they're driven sexually, to take sexual advantage of other people. It's, it's not going to stop. There is no way to educate the American people or somehow get people – like we haven't evolved that much that we're that different from the homo sapiens sapiens who walked around this earth – 5,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago. This is what happens. I don't think it's going to stop. I'm, I may be a cynical son of a bitch for thinking that, but I mean, as a student of history, I don't see much has changed. I don't see much is going to change. I don't know what, why would it change? Well, I guess I just mean not, not in terms of like the specific sexual activity and the using of stature to get sex. I'm sure that that will never change, right? That seems to be pretty evolutionarily hardwired unless we did some very significant modifications through uh, futuristic science. I guess more what I mean is the will the power of institutions like churches continue to drop because of it? Because it's just going to be harder to like, you got to wonder, 70 years ago, what percentage of scandals went undiscovered and today what percentage go undiscovered? I bet you if there was a way to find out, it is that fewer go undiscovered today than did then. So what role does that play? 
And then I guess my question is less about people using power for sex, for instance, uh, and other abuses of power, which again, yeah, that's, that'll always happen. And, you know, we can look to someone like Vladimir Putin for another example of that, but more about its effect on religious communities, I think is more what I'm curious about and how much of this stuff can, especially younger people take and what will they replace it with? And then will we see a spate of scandals from all the things that they replaced it with? <laughs> anyway, we got to wrap up, but these kind of things are kicking around my mind. Uh, Josh Patterson. Yeah. I mean, I'm on, I'm on board with, with all of that. And I just, for me personally, like I'm just in a place where I'm, I'm even asking like, do I want to put faith and trust back into this yeah. system? Yeah. Or is there, or as like I've said before, and then someone like, this was another quote from McLaren's book this morning, he was talking with somebody and they said, I have no hope for the church reforming or renewing. My only hope is that it collapses and dies soon before it does too much more harm. So something new can be resurrected. And if I'm honest, that's my sentiment. I'm like, why the hell do we keep having to have these conversations? Why do we keep trying to fix this broken thing? Why not just let it die? And then as Christians who claim to believe in this idea of resurrection, see what gets resurrected out of the ashes. And maybe I'm not fully comfortable with this language, but like maybe God is trying to do something new. And this like, you know, what is this new thing? Are we resisting it? So like, those are the kind of questions I'm more interested in is like, it, cause I don't think the church can just go away because like people worship everything and anything, just because you don't go to church doesn't mean you're, you know, not a religious person. So like, I think the church matters. Like, I think Christianity matters. I still follow this Jesus dude for some reason on some days, but like, I don't know. I'm just wondering like what, what's next. And how much longer do we wait? Uh, how many more books have to be written? How many more studies have to be done until people are like, maybe this whole thing is shit. I don't know. Tony is uh, caught in a war between having a whole episode's worth of thoughts on those questions and wanting to get out of here. <laughs> no, I, I just, <laughs> I think what we've been talking about today has not really been about the institution. And we spent a lot of time talking about the institution, but today we've talked about sinful individuals. And look, in like so many things in life, when you roll the, the bowling ball down the alley, it is very easy to, if you're a progressive, for it to go into the gutter of everything structural, everything systemic. There's the huge fucking systems, and we have to like rework our entire Western civilization. Capitalism is is broken, democracy is broken, higher ed is broken, everything's broken. We have to like blow the whole fucking thing up. If you're a conservative, it's very easy to roll your bowling ball into the gutter. That's like, it's individual human sin. And we just need to one by one reform our lives to be the, make them more Christ-like, and then this shit will stop happening. And like black people will be fully employed, and black <laughs> men will get out of prison. And you know what? We'll have, yeah, we'll have a just yeah. immigration system right. if we can just all individually give our lives to Jesus. But of course, the truth is both. There it's are both. structural systemic problems, and there are individual assholes who sin and take advantage of young women whom they're counseling in their pastor's office. Like, Bruxy's fall, was was it a systemic structural fall? Maybe, but it seems more likely that it was just like a sinful dude 
who like let his lust take control and didn't control it and didn't obey his own theological convictions. On the other hand, you know, at Hillsong, was it more structural? Probably more structural if they were covering up shit that Brian Houston was doing because they were like a a $100 million a year company, basically. So they had a lot to protect. But there's truth in, you know, the the truth is both. It's as, as it is in almost everything, the truth is both. So I'm glad that for once, a bunch of us progressives got together and talked about actual individual human sin. Because yeah. it's a real thing. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. Josh, Josh, Tony, thank you guys for your time. Josh Gilbert, we didn't get you on mic all that much this time. That's okay. There's a lot to be said. There was a lot to be said by three <laughs> dudes who have a lot to say. Um, but we'll get you back more involved for the next one of these. In the in the show notes, we're going to have links to an article about each of the three scandals and uh, Josh's You Have Permission episode and that Jean, Van- Jean Vanier You Have Permission episode for people who want to look back at those or listen back to those. Um, and otherwise, we'll see you in a couple weeks. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.